Our God, I, I thank you so much this morning for who you are. God, I, I praise you and you are worthy of my praise. You're worthy of our praise. Lord, I, I pray that this morning that in each one of our minds, Jesus would be bigger. Bigger than he was when we stepped into this auditorium this morning or turned on the live stream or the recording. God, help us to, to see him. As we look at the world around us, would, would the, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace? God, in this worship time together and studying your word, I pray that, that Jesus Christ would be lifted up. He would be glorified and seen for who he is. And Lord, would our lives and hearts align with that truth, those truths, and then would we proceed accordingly. Lord, if anybody here does not know you as Savior, have not submitted themselves to Christ in salvation, that glorious offer of forgiveness of sins and eternal life, I pray that they would come to Christ today or very soon. God, we love you so much. We worship and praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I'd like to address how you see and view the world around you. How's that for an intro? <laughs> That's a big, big ask, right? A big task to take on. As believers, folks, the Bible does say we are to set our affections on certain things, right? We are to seek certain things and forsake others. We are to be looking, right, for certain things, a focus and a mindset as believers. I want to address how each of us, how each of you, view the world around you today. You've heard the term big picture or the idea of perspective. I really hope that this morning is a really nice dose for each of us of biblical big picture perspective. I'll just give you kind of an intro here. If, you, if this is your first Sunday or you don't know who I am, my name is Bob D'Angelo. By the way, let me stop for a second. I meant to hit this earlier. Our pastor is not with us today. If you're joining us uh, for the first time, please come back. Uh, pastor Vradenberg, a great teacher of the Word of God, preacher of the Word of God. He's on vacation with his family. Be praying for him. By the way, you all know his birthday was last week, right? Everyone knows that? Hopefully you do. And so if you haven't wished him a happy birthday, please do so soon. But my name is Bob D'Angelo. Yes, I am Italian. No, I don't play hockey for the Carolina Hurricanes. But as an Italian, like many Italians, I can be sometimes emotional. <laughs> um, God knows my heart. He knows my journey spiritually. And at times I struggle, being honest, with responding to things too quickly in an emotional manner. I can lose very quickly all sense of perspective of the big picture because something enters my little world and, and rocks the boat a little bit. Anybody else like that? Probably just me, I'm sure. For example, I grew up in Chicago and learning to drive in Chicago, I was conditioned to respond. Everyone responds up there, you know, somebody cuts you off, everybody's a bad driver and so it's hard not to respond in a sinful fleshly way. I'll give you this one as far as perspective. I have learned myself well enough. At times, things pop up in my life. I'm the only one I'm sure, right? And I immediately sit at my computer and I compose, and I'm serious, a long email. Oh, I, I can write long ones. If, if you work with me, you know 
my legendary long, Pastor Brent smiling, my legendary, I, I type quickly, and so I write long emails sometimes. And I will write that email, and I have learned myself well enough to know that when I finish the email, I immediately send it to Bob D'Angelo and let it sit for a little bit. Overnight, often, I sleep on it, I think about it, let things settle, and then come back the next day, and many, many times, I look at the email and say, I lost my perspective. <laughs> I totally overreact to that situation. I'm going to shorten this or just not even send it at all. Perspective, big picture. Friends, I wonder if we as believers sometimes wrestle with that same thing when it comes to how we view the world, the world around us. I don't want to minimize the chaos in the world right now. It's chaotic. We all can agree to that. Everyone knows it. Some of you have had a tough year or a tough couple of years. Don't want to minimize that. Yes, there is a term virus we'd like to not hear for a long, long time. It's been a big part of our culture and society for a couple of years now, right? There are today wars that have been initiated by leaders we might, we might call madmen. What are you doing? And it certainly is sad that it's hard to not become numb to reports of violence in public places. Our world, yes, is a mess. I want to minimize that too much. But here is my question. How should you and I as believers who believe the Bible, who love Christ, look at that world around us? Should the chaotic world around us be the object of our gaze Or the object more of our glance. Gaze versus glance. How should we see the world around us? How focused should you and I be on the world around us and how bad things might be? Should the world around us be the object of our gaze, the anchor of how we feel about our lives? Or should the chaos rather be the object of a glance with our fixed gaze and focus being directed To something deeper. You know, a response of people at times, and I'll just give it to you without comment right now, but at times Christians look at the the world around us and they make this statement, something like this. They'll say, you know, I've read the back of the book and we win. This morning, I want to take us to the back of the book. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation, if you don't know the Bible very well, is the last book in the Bible. It was the last book written, time-wise, and it reveals, I would say, the conclusion of the message of the Bible. Look at chapter 1, verse 3, just to give some background here. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of, the prophecy, of this prophecy, sorry, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And so, first of all, you're welcome. We're going to read from the only book of the Bible that promises direct blessing to those who read, hear, and then keep it in their lives. Revelation 119 gives a divine outline of this book. It says, write the things, three things, which thou hast seen. That's chapter 1, the vision of the glorified Christ. Number 2, the things which are. That's chapters 2 and 3, the seven, seven letters to seven real live, at that point, local modern day churches, first century churches. And then thirdly, the things which shall be hereafter, which is chapters 4 through 22. The title of the book is Revelation. And if I were to ask you the question, what is the revelation referring to? What does he mean by 
Revelation, what is being revealed, many would say, well, future events and prophecy and those things are true, but that is not the central focus of the title of this book. Chapter 1, verse 1 gives the focus of the book when it says, the revelation of what or who? Jesus Christ. And I I would suggest to you the focus of this book, the climax of the book is what's being referred to there, and that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. My my opinion, uh, chapter 1, verse 7 is the, the key verse to the book, the theme. It says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. I want to address this morning how we as believers see the world. And my encouragement is this. Glance at what is happening around us. But set our gaze at the back of the book, the return of Jesus Christ. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19. We read this passage earlier. And we're going to to really digest this passage. Revelation 19 verses 1 through 11. We'll look at three points in the outline today. I'm not a big sub-point guy in my preaching, but today, because of the nature of the passage, there'll be three points and then some sub-points for each one of them. And so we're going to look at Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, and we'll get to each of these verses as we go through the passage and, and the outline of the sermon this morning. So number one, verses 11 through 16, we have the victorious king. The victorious king. Look at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. This occurs, this type of phrase that I understand twice in Revelation. The last time heaven was opened in Revelation is chapter 4 verse 1 when John is, had just heard the seven messages to the seven churches and heaven is opened before his wondering eyes. In that passage, Revelation 4, heaven is opened to let John into heaven. He is beckoned into heaven. In 1911, the opposite is sort of true. Heaven is open to, in a sense, let Jesus out of heaven and come back to this earth. So under the victorious king, we have, first of all, his names. We'll see his names, his appearance, and the purpose of his coming under point number one, the victorious king. First of all, his names. Anybody have a nickname here? Been given a nickname by somebody or chose one for yourself, maybe even when I was a kid, my nickname was Bobby D. People call me Bobby D. Elena Willis is in Whiteville right now. She still calls me Bobby D. Whether she should or not, right? But she does. She should. She has that right. She's earned that right to call me Bobby D. I played uh, Little League Baseball in middle school. I played second base. And I was nicknamed pretty quickly the vacuum cleaner. And what that meant was that every ball that came to the right side of the infield, I would vacuum cleaner it up and take it in and not let it pass me. I was a good fielder, the vacuum cleaner. I have to give a shout out. My dog, Sammy, who is not with us anymore, uh, many of you know that our beloved dog, had literally about 20 nicknames that we gave him. And all of them were ridiculous and all of them sort of captured the essence of my beloved dog who is no longer with us, Sammy. Well, it's interesting that in, in just a couple of verses here, 11 to 16, John alludes to the names of Jesus four times. Interesting. Look at verse 11. It says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, 
And he that sat upon him was called, the first name, Faithful and True. The first name of the, the rider on the white horse, Faithful and True. Now, if you know Revelation at all, the last several chapters have painted a picture of a man named the Antichrist, the beast. The Antichrist in Revelation wields great power, but he is a covenant breaker and a deceiver, repeatedly over and over again. In complete contrast to the Antichrist, we have the real, the true Christ. He is not a covenant breaker or a deceiver. He is, a, he is called faithful and true. Faithful and true. He is a promise keeper, and as he said in John 14, he is the truth. He is faithful and true. Look at verse 12 next. It says, uh, toward the end of the verse, he had a name written, another name here, that no man knew but him, I'm sorry, but he himself. And so we have faithful and true. We also have a, an unknown name given to this rider on the horse. As far as the, the, the character and nature of Jesus, friends, he is a kind shepherd. He is that. He is your best friend, closer than a brother. But there is also undoubtedly an element of mystery to Jesus. There is a depth to Christ, a part of him that you and I don't fully understand and comprehend. And this is alluded to, to, to here in one of his names, a name which no man knew but he himself. Faithful and true, and then an unknown name. Next in verse 13, it says the end of the verse, and his name is called the Word of God. The Word of God. Who wrote Revelation? We know, right? At least most of you know, I would, I would assume. The Apostle John. The same author who wrote the Gospel of John. And so the language here is pretty similar, isn't it? Sound familiar, right? John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What does that language refer to? What is the Word? Verse 14 tells us, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Word of God. He is the Logos. He is the icon, the image of the invisible God. He is the express image of God's person. He is the full, final, complete revelation of God to man. He is the word of God. That's his name. Faithful and true, unknown name, mystery, the word, the expression of God, the revelation of God. And then number four, his fourth name is given in verse 16. And boy, what a name it is. He hath on his vesture or his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There have always been and always will be rulers of people on earth. Well, this rider on the horse, this, this victorious king, is the king of those kings. He is the Lord of those lords. He is the ruler of those rulers. The Bible says that God gave Jesus, has given Jesus a name above every name. You know, think of some names that come to mind as far as influence or leadership on earth right now. There are many. News flies fast. 
Time Magazine has 100 you know, most influential people of the year and so forth. We think of rich men. The richest man on, man on earth right now, that according to what I looked up, was, is Elon Musk. Followed by Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, all with a net worth of over $100 billion. We have our own nation's leaders, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Donald Trump, kind of, sort of. Governor DeSantis seems to get a lot of press right now. Governor Cooper in our state. We have world leaders like Vladimir Putin. We have Queen Elizabeth. Boris Johnson, kind of. He's resigning, I guess, or he resigned. Closer to home, Justin Trudeau in Canada. We have sports figures like LeBron James, Steph Curry, and Tom Brady. We have religious figures like the Pope and other megachurch pastors who speak and write books. And you get the idea. I'm not commenting here on the character of use of these people, but only that their voices in this world seem to speak loudly. They have influence in our world. Some of them rule people. My point in giving these names is this. The Bible is clear. Jesus' name is above every name. That was written here, and that has not changed in 2,000 years. He is the king of kings. He is the influencer of influencers, the ruler of rulers, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. Those are his names given in this passage. He is faithful and true. He is, has an unknown name, mystery. He is called the Word of God, and he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Then we see his appearance. A couple thoughts that are given here. First of all, look at verse 11. It says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him. First of all, he is riding a white horse. He is riding a white horse. Now, contrast, the contrast here is pretty evident, I think. His first coming was not like this. He came as a baby, helpless baby in a manger. And then entered Jerusalem as the king on, not a horse, but a colt. His second coming, he will return on a white, victorious horse as the conquering king. Then it says his eyes are a flame of fire. Look at verse 12. His eyes were as a flame of fire. This is also referenced in, in 114 as well. What does this mean? You know, I, I picture this in my, my imagination. John saw a vision and then wrote it down. And this is a pretty detailed, full picture that he's looking at. And the fact that, his, that the, the rider on the white horse's eyeballs stuck out to him says something to me. All these people and horses and beings and, and the, the earth and all the, the, the people that are there. And, and yet what sticks out to him in one sense is... The eyeballs of the rider on the white horse. They are a flame of fire. What does this mean? Well, it could mean that they are a flame with a penetrating gaze, that the rider sees every person and he sees straight through every person, light into their heart. It could mean that. It could mean that his eyes are ablaze with passion or anger. Folks, either way, those eyes made an impression on John as he watched this vision and then wrote it down. And I will say this to you. The eyes of Jesus being a flame of fire is a terrifying sight. Thirdly, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. A robe dipped in blood. Look at verse 13. It says, and he was clothed with a vesture or a robe dipped in blood. His robe is colored a deep red. 
And again, what, what, what is this blood referring to? Is it the blood of battle? The blood of the sacrifice of Jesus for those who are the object of his love? Look, either way, Christ with his eyes a flame of fire on a white horse is a victorious king. And the blood or, or, and, and, and a red blood robe paint an awesome picture of this rider. And then fourthly, it says, he is followed by his armies, verse 14, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. So question for you, who are these armies? Who are these armies on white horses flanking and following this rider? Well, just my opinion, I think that's us. I'm not sure who John saw in this vision, but he saw people. And there is a very small chance that he saw Bob D'Angelo on a white horse. Or Rob Sutherland, or Aaron Bettler, or Gary Goodson, or Melanie Vradenberg, or Sheila Shepard. He may have seen you on those white horses. And it says here, interest, one kind of side note I want to just touch on for a second. It says that we are clothed in fine linen, linen, white and clean. Look over at 19 verse 8. 19 1 to 10 give the, the account of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look at verse 8. It says, And to her, the bride of Christ, that's us as believers, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen, get this statement, is the righteousness of who? Of saints. Did you catch that? Folks, right now I am the object, the receiver of imputed righteousness from Christ. I have been declared righteous by God in spite of my own sin. If you're a believer, same to you. But now at this point, these white robes symbolize a church clothed with a righteousness of its own. No longer is the church only dependent on imputed righteousness, but at this point they have been made like Jesus, 1 John 3, 2, and 3, with an imparted holy righteousness and perfection. Wow. So let me ask you this. Raise your hand. How many of you are comfortable riding a horse? Yeah, more than I would have thought. Well, the rest of you might want to take some lessons because one day you may be coming back in the sky riding a white horse. And the final part of this picture as far as the description, verse 16 says, he has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. Now, what does this mean? Verse 16, I'll read it for you. And he had, I'm sorry, verse 15, it should be. And with it, he, uh, I'm sorry, verse 15, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations. Now, is that literal? You know, when you say revelation, you have to ask the question often, is this symbolic? Is it literal? My personal study and understanding is unless it says like or as or says this is a symbol, I take it literally for the most part or obvious, I should say. Now, in this case, you may disagree. I would say this is a symbol. I don't think that in in this white horse ride that John saw, there was a literal sword coming out of his mouth. I don't think so. Could be wrong, right? But regardless, this highlights the power of the words of Jesus, Hebrews 4.12, you may know the verse, it says, The word of God is quick and powerful, alive and powerful, and what? Sharper than any any two-edged sword. Isaiah 11.4 says this, 
With righteousness he shall judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. What a picture. The rider on the white horse, the victorious king. And then we have thirdly underneath this first point, and just so you know, stay with me, point two is much shorter, okay? Let her see here his purpose for coming. I'll just reference this here and what it says in the text, but verse 11, the end of the verse, in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Verse 15, that's what we just discussed, that with it he should smite, the word is slay, the nations. Verse 15, he will rule them with a rod of iron. Verse 15, again, he treadeth out the winepress of the wrath of God. And that picture, I'm not going to take time to, to discuss the, the picture there, but the image is of treading out a winepress depicting God's judgment. It's used in Isaiah 63, Joel 3, and then not long before this in Revelation 14. I'll summarize in this way as far as his purpose for coming. When Jesus came the first time, he came as a babe, a meek and mild lamb whose purpose was to lay down his life, to allow his own blood to be shed. When he comes the second time, he is not coming as a meek, mild lamb. He is coming as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah, as a conquering king coming to reclaim what belongs to him. Are you getting the picture? And he is coming, as verse 16 says, with fierceness, with the fury of the wrath of Almighty God. Wow. Let's stop for a second and just catch our breath. I I just dumped a lot on you. That is quite a picture, isn't it? We use the word awesome a lot. <laughs> I'm, I'm guilty. I love the word awesome. Everything's awesome, right? As that song in the Lego movie, everything is awesome, you know, whatever. But folks, what you just read and, and absorbed is truly an awesome description of the glorified Son of God, Jesus Christ. Whew. As I study this and now preach it, I'm just catching my breath, trying to catch up mentally and emotionally with what is going on here and what's being depicted. We have the the victorious king. Number two, and this will be briefer, the brief battle. Verses 17 to 21, the brief battle. This is the battle of Armageddon. It's kind of of a term in our, our, our culture even. You know, Armageddon is the end of the world. This is the battle, literally, of Armageddon. Some of you have been to Israel and seen parts of the valley of Megiddo, north of Jerusalem. Napoleon Bonaparte knew battle. Napoleon called the Valley of Megiddo, quote, the most natural battleground of the entire earth. I'll read the verses, just kind of briefly comment. Verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun. What a picture that is, huh? Boy, I don't think he's in the sun. I think he's in a prominent place. So as this is developing, there is an angel in the view of the sun making an announcement. And he says, he cries with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, 
and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And then verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his, great ar- against his army. And so this king is coming to conquer and awaiting him in the valley of Armageddon, of Megiddo, are the kings of the earth and their armies led by the Antichrist. Verse 20, the beast was taken, he was seized, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and then that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with fire and brimstone. The Antichrist and his false prophet are prominent figures in Revelation. And here we just read the final reference to the Antichrist. That's the end of him. He is cast alive, it says, into a lake of fire, never to be heard from again or influence anybody ever again. I'll read verse 21, and I'm just going to read it for you and leave that because your imagination can go a lot of places in this. It says, And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So the statement, I've read the back of the book, and we win. (laughs) Is that true? Well, yes, of course it is. Jesus indeed returns to earth to triumph and victory. Is that statement appropriate to what the back of the book actually conveys? Not to criticize or, or pick too, too, in too much detail, but I, I battle with that a little bit. Is, is that statement a little trite compared to what we're reading here? What is being conveyed? To summarize the culmination of the Bible with, we win? Compared to the gravity of what we just studied here in Revelation 19? And so what should our, our response be? If you're a believer today, what should your response be to this incredible, jaw-dropping passage of Scripture. This is the third point, our response. We don't have to guess. We can go to Revelation 22 over a page here and see the application, the response, the takeaways God would like us to have. So just a, a quick scan here. Revelation 21 to 10 gives the millennial kingdom description, the thousand-year literal reign of Jesus Christ on earth. 11 to 15 of chapter 20 give the great white throne judgment. And then in Revelation 21 and 22, God gives us information about a topic that I love to read and think about and imagine and and dream about, and that is eternity future on the new earth. I don't know how God gave these visions to John. I like to think about these things and just sort of humanize a little bit. Did God give this entire thing, Revelation uh, 1 to 22, and then say, okay, John, you, you saw it all, now write it down. <laughs> Boy, if he, if he did that, he's got a better memory than I do, the way he wrote. I wonder if God gave him vision, said write, vision, and then write, and then sort of let him digest a little bit at a time. But regardless, at the end, or in, in the beginning of Revelation 22, the visions of Revelation come to an end. Look at verse 3. I'll read a couple of verses here. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no more night there, and they they shall need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. 
And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And then he finishes the visions. And so what is the response of John? What should our response be? Two things, two takeaways uh, in finishing the sermon this morning. Look at verse 8. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. <laughs> wow. And when, I heard and, and when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren, the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. And then we have the first takeaway, the first application. It's there for us at the end of the visions, including the one we just studied there. Here's the first application. Two words. Worship God. Worship God. After absorbing all these visions, including chapter 19, John falls on his face, literally, in worship. Have you ever been in awe of something? It's a neat feeling, isn't it, to be in awe of something? I'll, I'll give you a couple of pictures here. A couple of years ago, my family went to uh, Arizona, fulfilled a lifetime dream of mine, and we saw the Grand Canyon. And I, I'll never forget leading up to the, to the Grand Canyon. We were driving into Arizona. If you've been there before, we went to the, the South Rim, which is one of the neatest ones, I guess. We drove on this interstate, and then you turn off and head north, I believe it is, uh, on a road about 45 m- minutes to an hour and head to the South Rim. We turn left and we're heading up and I am literally shaking. I can't, I'm like a little kid. I, I cannot sit still. I'm so excited to see the Grand Canyon finally. And so we drive up there. We stop at the, at the, uh, the, the visitor center just to kind of catch my breath a little bit and just sort of get a hold of myself. And then we, we park the car and it's like, it's, there it is right there. And so we walk over and literally I walk to the edge and for a good five minutes, I stand there, mouth open, and say nothing. (laughs) I am overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed by the size, beauty, and vastness of what I was looking at. Ah. I've been to Niagara Falls. Maybe you've been there too. I I stayed at a hotel that had a room that that looked at the falls. The window, you could see the falls from your window. I was in the room by myself. I just often sat there just looking. I just wanted to look at it and just absorb this massive waterfall across the way. Even last Thursday, our, our cul-de-sac faces west, and so we see some good sunsets. My daughter, Anna, uh, texted me or called me and said, Dad, come on out here. So I go outside, and sure enough, there's a beautiful sky with, with burning red and orange and also gentle, comforting purple and pink. And we just look at it. I, I remember the, the, the birth of my children. They're all grown now, but... When Julia was born in particular, we were in Kansas City, Missouri, and it was the middle of the night. No, the whole world was asleep except for Kelly and I, and, and Julia's born. I remember holding this little baby, speechless, saying, oh, my word, I have a daughter. <laughs> I'm a dad to a girl, and just be in awe. If you're in awe of something, it's hard to be in a bad mood, isn't it? It's hard to pull yourself away. Everything else just sort of fades into the background. You almost forget everything and everyone around you. You just stop, you want to just enjoy the emotion, the feeling of being overwhelmed. And I wonder if in some small way, being in awe of the Grand Canyon or a sunset 
was anything similar, in a small way even, to the awe and marvel that John experienced and observed in the vision of the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19. When you're in awe of something, you gaze at it. When you worship something or someone, you gaze at it. So let me stop and ask you, after all I just gave to you there, where is your gaze today? Where is our gaze today? Again, I don't want to minimize the world around us. But I'm just asking the question, should the world around us, our society, be the object of our gaze as believers? Honest question. Folks, I'll give you this, this simple application here. I'm just being, being, this is my opinion, okay? I'd be careful how much you watch the news, all right? If it's on 24-7 your house, the result of that's going to be a little rough, I feel like. Be careful how much the world around you captures your gaze. It deserves our glance. Don't put your head in the sand. I'm not saying that. It deserves our glance. But friend, I would encourage you to set your focus, the gaze of your mind, on something much more profound. When it comes to our gaze, I encourage you to look at the world and worship God. Worship God. I hope that this morning when you leave, one of your big takeaways is that God is bigger in your mind and heart than than he was when you walked in today. That's the purpose. Worship God. If you make the world and chaos around you the object of your gaze, even your worship, the natural two plus two result is going to be anxiety and worry. It just makes sense. But if you make Jesus Christ the object of your affectionate gaze, the object of your worship, the result will be joyful awe and peace. Listen to what Jesus said. John 16, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And we see that here in Revelation 19. And so number one, the first takeaway is worship God. Would God be big in your hearts? Would, would your gaze be on the big picture, the perspective of how this all ends and the fact that it's about Christ and one day he will make all wrongs right. And takeaway number two, and again, it's in Revelation 22 right here. If you do not belong to Christ, today come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. I'll say this compassionately. I'm not sure how else to say this, friends. The end of the lost those who don't repent and submit to Christ in salvation, as we just read, is not pretty. It's not pretty. That, that doesn't have to be your end. Christ died on the cross for you at his first coming so you could belong to him and have eternal, abundant life. And I want that for you, for you today. The simple gospel, you're a sinner. Acknowledge it. Romans says all have sinned. Because of your sin, you are separated from God, and so am I. The wages or payment for sin is death. Sin, not just outward acts, but our inward nature, breaks that relationship with God. But when Christ came at his first coming, he gave his life for you on the cross because he loves you. He loves you so much. 
He shed his own blood on the cross for you and wants to have a relationship with you, an eternal relationship. And today, if you will say no to your sin, I don't want it anymore. I confess it. I acknowledge it. I don't want it. I repent of my sin and say yes to Jesus Christ, his person and work in faith, you will be saved. Doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done. You'll be saved. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth, not not pays penance or whatever, believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that is the call of Christ as we finish Revelation. Look at verse 16 of chapter 22. He says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And watch verse 17. As he finishes the Bible, five verses before the end, he says this one more time. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst, come. Come to Jesus. And whosoever will Let him take of the water of life, and to be clear, freely. It's free. It's all paid for. You can't pay for it. Jesus already did. And so Jesus, in giving all this information to us in Revelation, finishes out before the Bible is closed and says, one more time, come. Just come. Come as you are, just as I am. Come to Christ. Friend, if you don't know Christ today, I encourage you, consider Christ. What's holding you back? Come to Jesus. Let go of your sin and say yes to Christ in faith and you will be saved. I would say a little more appropriate manner, I'll say it this way. I've read the back of the book. And by the way, so have you now. I've read the back of the book and he wins. And as you anticipate Jesus winning, Let's fix our gaze on him with a heart, of mind, heart and mind of awe and worship. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. Not to minimize the world today. We get all that. But it's all about Jesus. Let's gaze on him and be overwhelmed by a heart of worship and awe. Let's enjoy the peace that only he can give. And if you don't know Christ today, if he doesn't know you, come today. As the very back of the book says, the last couple thoughts that God gave before he finished the Bible. Verse 20. He which testifieth these things saith, surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's bow together. God, we praise and worship you. Your word conveys Jesus in a way that we, are, we have no choice but to look at him. And to worship, to fall at his feet. He is our best friend. He is our shepherd who who leads us beside still waters. But God, he is a conquering king. He is a lion. And he is worthy of our worship and praise. God, I pray for, for those that know Christ today, that have heard this message on the scriptures, have heard the, the Bible and what you say and what you reveal to us and want us to know and absorb and think about. Help us to worship Christ. Would in our minds, each one of our minds, would Jesus be bigger, more prominent, 
more of an umbrella under which everything fits. Help us to worship him in awe and joyful uh, adoration and peace. And God, again, I pray that if there are, are those that are here or hear this on live stream that don't know you, would they bow to Christ in salvation, receive his free gift of eternal life. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.